Oh, gracious God, we come before you now, and God, once again, we ask that you would settle our hearts, that you would put Christ as the focus of our minds and our hearts. Father, we have so many things that are vying for attention in our minds and hearts, and even as we speak of grief, that would grab our attention. And Lord, we come and confess once again that we need you, Lord. So Father, we ask that you would help us in our weakness, that you would teach us from your word, that you would give us hope in the midst of dark seasons in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are on week four of our Biblical Theology of Grief Sunday School class. Uh, this morning, if you have a handout, you'll see on your handout that this morning we were looking at grief-influenced, grieving with hope. And so hope is a big deal, especially when it comes to grief, because as we go through grief, there are seasons of grief where we can feel absolutely hopeless. And so hope matters. It's so important that we can see and have hope in the midst of our deep grief. It's those times when there seems like only dark clouds are closing in on us, that even the slightest glimmer of light would bring strength to our soul. And because of that, this morning, the goal of this lesson is to encourage us that even in those dark times, there is always hope because we have a living God. And so if you have a handout, the handout's a little different than previous weeks. Typically, you had an introduction section. That got cut out. So all this is introduction. You can put those notes wherever you like. Um, but in the introduction, I want us to flip through a couple lines in the Psalms. Actually, there's going to be quite a few this morning. So if you have your Bibles, if you would open up to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, just looking at a couple lines in Psalm 42. I know our brother Rob is studying Psalm 42. Rob, not taking any of your thunder from your studies. Psalm 42, if you would look at verse 5 with me in Psalm 42, we read this. Why are you cast down Oh, my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Go down to verse 11 of the same psalm. You're going to see something that looks very familiar, like exactly the same. Verse 11, Psalm 42, why are you cast down, oh, my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, they go together and you'll see why. Flip over to Psalm 43 and look at verse 5, something that looks very familiar. Psalm 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? 
Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, this is Sunday school, so we could be interactive. Where is the hope supposed to be? Is the hope just in some blind hope, like hoping in hope? The hope is in God. And so our attention needs to be focused on him. And so biblical hope is much different than what people usually use the word hope, like some wishful thinking. Well, I hope that happens. Now, that is not the type of hope we're speaking of here. This is the confident assurance of things not seen. Confident assurance. It's based on trusting God and trusting his word. That when we trust God and we trust his word, that he is a God who cannot lie, that he's a God that's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, that we can trust him. And because we trust him, we can have hope in God. Now, our emotions sometimes run a different direction. Our emotions sometimes go and make us think either very little of God, because sometimes even on that mountaintop, we're at that peak, and all is good. Sometimes we're not even thinking about God or even rejoicing in God. And just the opposite is true. Sometimes when we're in that deep, deep valley, we're just thinking about the things around us and the circumstances we're in, and we're not thinking about God. This morning, I want you to see that our hope is always in God. That our trust is always in God. It's always in his word. That we're always to put him on the forefront of our mind, whether we're at that peak or in that valley. And as we talk about the biblical theology of grief, oftentimes that's a valley. It's a valley of emotion. It's a valley of pain. And so this morning, we're going to look at three different areas where we hope in God. The first one, and it's a bullet on your notes this morning, is the nearness of of God. We spoke a little bit about it last week as we looked to the suffering servant of what it's like to feel alone, to feel alone in our grief, to feel alone in pain. And yet one of the things that bring us hope when we look to God's word is that he is not a God that is far off, but he is a God who is near. I want to read you a quote from Paul David Tripp. He writes this, quote, loss of hope renders you weak and timid, lacking in motivation and courage. It causes you to hide instead of move out. It causes you to give up quickly instead of press on. It causes you to fear rather than believe. It leaves you convinced that you can't do what, in fact, you have the power to do. Our hope is not found in understanding why God allowed suffering into our lives. Our hope is not found in the belief that somehow we will tough our way through. Our hope is not found in doctors, lawyers, pastors, families, or friends. Our hope is not found in our resilience or ingenuity. Our hope is not found in ideas or things. Though we may look to all those for temporary help, ultimately our hope rests in the faithful and gracious presence of the Lord with us. So all those other things that sound like things that we might hope in, truly our hope is that our God is with us. 
that he is near. That though my emotion might cloud that at times and I might feel, God, where are you? The truth from his word is that he is always with me and that he is always with you. Psalm 23, a, a favorite psalm for many. In Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why does he say that? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We need to cling to the truth of Scripture that God is with us even in those darkest of times. Those times that when the enemy of our soul would say, you're all alone. God has forsaken you. You're in this by yourself. That We must cling to the truth of God that he is there. He is with us. You can flip to Psalm 139. Since you're in the Psalms, flip over to Psalm 139, God is intimately with us. He's not just around somewhere. Look at Psalm 139. I'm going to read from verse 5. Psalmist writes, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? This is Psalm 139, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It's not this idea that, you know, God's somewhere around. He is with us. He is holding us. And so the idea that when we go through the grief and it just seems like darkness and we can't see any light and there's this lie spin in our head that we have been forsaken, we need to cling to scripture that he is with us. He is right there. We see this more if you flip earlier in the Psalms, to Psalm 46. The sons of Korah wrote about God's presence and knowing his presence, Psalm 46. They would start off, God is our refuge and strength. Psalm 46, verse one. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Stop there. Can you just meditate on those words? God is our refuge and our strength. A very present help in trouble. When we are in dark grief, we feel though we are in complete despair. We need a God who is near. We need a God who is carrying us. And we need to understand that he is there. And that he is sustaining us. So as the psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Verse two, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, 
Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains treble at its swelling. What, what is he saying here? He's saying, though, even though in my eyes everything around me is falling apart, I don't have to fear because my God is with me. That even though none of this makes sense, I mean, everything he just described is utter chaos all around, that I don't have to fear because God is with me. Verse four, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Verse seven, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I got a question to ask. When? When is God with us? When is he our fortress? Always. All the time. Think about as we go through grief and we think, God, where are you? He is right there. He is with you at all times. Verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, excuse me, the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Notice that is repeated. It is the main point that God is with us. The nearness of God is so important to grasp as we go through grief. We have to know in our deepest, darkest despair that God is with us. He is the one who is sustaining us. He is the one getting us through times that other people would look at your grief and say, I don't know how you're doing it. I don't know how I would deal with something like that. Well, how is it dealt with? Because God is sustaining you. God is upholding you in that deep, dark grief. A passage that is very familiar to many of us is Philippians chapter 4. If you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 4. Don't know about any of you, but sometimes I get anxious. I'm sure you are all super saints and never have any issues with being anxious. But it's interesting the way that Paul the Apostle packs this together and how he explains this. In Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 5, he writes, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, this is interesting because he's saying being reasonable in the context of being anxious. When we fear, when we worry, oftentimes we're not very reasonable. We're fretting. We're, we're concerned about what might happen. He says, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. And look what he writes next. The Lord is at hand. That word means is near. 
The Lord is near. So when we begin to freak out about circumstances that are going on, the reminder here is, hey, the Lord is near. This is the reason all these things can occur is because the Lord is near. And because the Lord is near, we hear this. Do not be anxious about anything. Why should I not be anxious about anything? Because the Lord is near. You guys following the connection here? He has not abandoned me with all these things that are going on. The Lord is near. The Lord is with us. So don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why? Because he's near. And what's the result of that? And we'll look at this in a future week. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? It means even in deep grief, I don't have to freak out because the Lord is near. My flesh wants to freak out. Oh, how will I be able to do this? How will I be able to get through this? The answer is the Lord is near. That he will hold you. And he will help you to endure. That you're not alone in the midst of your grief. The nearness of God gives us great hope in the midst of great grief. That we have a God who is not far off. Secondly, this morning, the promises of God. And not like that's not a promise of God, it is. But there are many promises of God that we must cling to during grief. This morning, we're only going to cover a couple. So if you think of more promises of God that give you hope and grief, go ahead and write them in your notes. Encourage yourself in the word of God. But right in line with what we spoke of in part one about the nearness of God is the promise of God that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, do you trust God? Because if you trust God, then even in those moments where you feel like you've been forsaken, that you feel like, oh God, where are you now? If you trust God, and he's a God who cannot lie, and he's promised that he'll never leave you nor forsake you, then he has not left you. He has not forsaken you. Now, these words were first spoken to Joshua in Joshua 1.5, but the writer of Hebrews applies it to all believers. In Hebrews 13.5, he reminds us he has not left you nor forsaken you. It applies to all of us that he promises to be with us. Jesus himself said he would be with us until the end of the age. It's not like somehow in despair and in grief that Jesus goes, okay, you're on your own now. I'm, I'm, I'm done. But he even draws closer because he is a suffering servant, one who has compassion and, and empathizes with us as we grieve. And so as we go through times when we feel all alone, we must hope in God's promises. Hope in the fact that he has not left me. 
that he is still with me. He has not forsaken me because of these circumstances in my life. That his love is constant. Sometimes we get love messed up because of we experience love from others and that love ebbs and flows. It's not constant. And sometimes people will do unselfish acts towards you and, and show you true love. And other times they'll do very selfish acts towards you and not demonstrate love. But God's love is perfect. As a matter of fact, the title of the sermon coming up is Incorruptible Love or Love Incorruptible. An example of Christ's love. His love is constant. Romans 8, verses 35 through 39 Give you a second to flip your Bibles. Romans 8, starting in verse 35. We read, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul writes in verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church, that means even in the darkest hour of grief, in the deepest form of grief, he is with you and that he loves you dearly. Oh, how our emotions run so contrary to that. Oh, how our questioning of God even runs so contrary to that. God, if you loved me, then why? We begin to ask the questions, why? And as we look this morning and we see that we are to grieve with hope, it's not so much the question of why that we get the answer. It's the command to trust in this God. That in the midst of everything else, he has commanded us to trust him. Though we may not understand, it is to trust and to know that he loves us deeply. That Christ loves you so much, he would give his very life for you. No greater love than that, than one to lay down their life for another. He's not forsaken you in your grief Nothing can separate you from his love. Jesus spoke some precious words in John chapter 10. I'm going to pick up on just a few of them. In John chapter 10, starting in verse 27, and if you happen to have a, the words in red, you'll see I'm taking just a little chunk of Jesus' words out of a lot of what he said there. In John chapter 10, starting in verse 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, 
Listen to what he says next. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. There's times where grief is so overwhelming that our emotions begin to speak to us and say just the opposite. Have I been abandoned? Have I been left behind by Christ? Have I fallen out of his graces? Start questioning all the pain. Why all the misery? Which, by the way, as I speak of that, I think of the passage we just wrote, read in Romans 8. You know who wrote that, right? Paul. Do you know the life of Paul as a Christian? It was not peachy and perfect. It wasn't come to Christ and everything's going to be easy. It was come to Christ so he could show you how much you must suffer for his namesake. That was his life. He suffered and he suffered much. But he found hope in knowing the love of Christ. These words of Christ spoken here in John 10, that no one can snatch you out of his hands, that you've been given to him from the Father, and no one can take you from the Father. These are great words to hope in as you grieve, because there is an enemy of our soul speaking utter lies to us, that we have been abandoned and forsaken. But even in our darkest and weakest moments, nothing can take us away from Christ. Nothing. We are his and he is ours. We must cling to these promises of Christ when we are in despair, when we are grieving, is that he is still with us and he still loves us. You know, there's another promise that we have spoken of in past weeks, and it's a beautiful, it's a glorious promise that at one time in the future, maybe now, no, that didn't work, that he will wipe away every tear. We read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, and when he creates the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, when he restores what was lost in the garden. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, or from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What does this mean? It means this is the last time that we're going to have to grieve. That there is a promise of God, that there is a future with God, that there will be no more mourning, there will be no more sadness, no more crying, no more grief. And it is a promise of God that we must cling to that even though we go through suffering now, that there is hope that there will be no more suffering. 
and that time span of eternity, though in our grief, it feels like eternity. A true eternal life with Christ, that time span doesn't compare with what we go through now. Once we're with the Lord, all suffering is over. I love what Alistair Begg said. He said this, quote, he said, if we are devoid of a theology of suffering, we are in danger of marginalizing our expectations of heaven. If we conclude that we are now to experience total healing, unfettered joy, unparalleled success, and freedom from pain, then why be concerned about heaven? Now, I realize, I'll keep reading that quote, that with this accent, it's totally different than his. It would be way more powerful with his accent behind that. But he continues in my accent, not his. How did Paul handle his sufferings and encourage the church to face theirs? Not by trying to produce heaven on earth, but by recognizing that for the Christian, the best is yet to be. He took the moment and put it in the larger context of God's unfolding purpose, not only for time, but also in eternity, end quote. Alistair Begg points out that if we have a theology or an understanding of God that this life is supposed to be peachy and perfect, then we are going to be so devastated because the pains and the sorrows in this life are very real. And for some, it is sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow, and we don't have enough time to keep going. But he says, what about when we put heaven in perspective? And it's such an important topic that I think it's week eight that we're going to spend a whole lesson just looking at that. And, and how in grief, the grief can be refocused. And it's during grief that then we begin to long for heaven even more. It's during that deep suffering that we're like, oh, I can't wait for the day when this is done with, that there is no more of this. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians regarding this. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 16, the apostle Paul writes, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And listen to what he writes. This is the Apostle Paul, who has not gone through what I would call light affliction. He writes this in verse 17, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction. Oh God, would he give us the same perspective as the Apostle Paul, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. Listen to how he describes this. As an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I want you to look at this description here. Eternal weight of glory beyond all Comparison, which means we can't even fathom. And there, there is no comparison through grieving now and glory then. It's not like this is on one side and that's on the other. They're not comparable. It's exceedingly abundantly greater than we could ever imagine. 
to that point, Robert Murray McShane, which if you're not familiar with Robert Murray McShane, I encourage you to look into his life and his young life as he went to be with the Lord at a young age, but was wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. He said this, quote, some believers are very surprised when they're called to suffer. They thought they would do some great things for God, but all God permits them to do is to suffer. Just suppose you could speak with those who have gone to be with the Lord. Everyone has a different story, yet everyone has a tale of suffering. One was persecuted by family and friends. Another was inflicted with pain and disease. Another was neglected by the world. Another was bereaved of children. Another had all of these afflictions combined. But you'll notice that though the water was deep, they all have reached the other side. Not one of them blames God for the road he led them. Salvation is their only cry. The God who is near, the God who has promised never to leave you nor forsake you, is the God who promises you that you will be with him forevermore. And at that point, it's not looking back upon the sorrows, it's rejoicing to be with your maker. It's rejoicing to be with your Lord. And this is why in the midst of Romans chapter eight, where Paul unpacks just what suffering looks like, in Romans chapter eight, verse 18, the apostle Paul writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. No comparison. Same thing he said to those in Corinth. There is no comparison. That as we are in grief, our hope is that this is not the place we're gonna be forever. We're not gonna be in the middle of this grief forever, but there is an eternity to spend with our Lord. And there, there will be no sorrow and no suffering. And there, it is beyond description how glorious and great it will be. I spoke these words earlier this week. It's from John chapter 14, quoting the words of Jesus. In John chapter 14, Jesus telling his disciples he's about to go, he's going to leave, and they're going to grieve. And he says this, he says, let not your hearts be troubled, John 14. Believe in me, believe also, or excuse me, believe in God, believe also in me. Let me start that again. These are the words of Jesus. I do not want to mess these up. John 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Isn't that great hope in the midst of our grief? We're not going to be there forever. That Jesus is going to take us home. That he has promised that to us. And that he cannot lie. And when we speak of grieving with hope, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, a verse many of you are familiar with. You most likely don't have to turn there. Once I start reading it, you'll be familiar. Paul writes, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. It's about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who do not have for the believer, we have hope. And when we lose 
other believers. We stay in that hope because we know the Bible speaks of how we are created, that we are made up of body and soul. And so what does it mean that when someone, a believer, is to pass, it means, one, right now, we are carrying around our spirit, who we are inside this tent. But when we pass from here, our spirit is perfected and goes straight to the presence of the Lord to remain there until Christ comes back and there is a resurrection from the dead. And then glorified bodies are reunited with that spirit forevermore. But right when a believer dies, their spirit is perfected and brought to the presence of the Lord. And so grieving with hope is this. We can look at, one, our loss. Or we can look at what they've gained. What they've gained is Christ. And what Christ has gained is them who he's spilt his blood for. That now they are perfected in his presence. That's why Paul the Apostle would argue that he was, he was conflicted. You know, to, to live as Christ, but to die as gain. And his desire is to, to go and to be with Christ. But he knew that he still had ministry to do to the saints, unto the saints, that God would still use him. But he believed the promises of God. That he knew that when he was to pass, he would be in the presence of God. And so we must cling to the promises of God. That all the pain and the misery of this time will come to an end. And that we'll live in a place where there is no longer any sin and no more devastation from sin, meaning no sorrow, no misery. Think of all the other promises that we could talk about this morning. I'm looking at the time and we need to hurry. I still have the sovereignty of God in like one minute. Good luck with that, huh? The sovereignty of God. Let's talk about it. We saved it for last because as you grieve, for someone to tell you, oh, you know, God is in control is not the most reassuring thing at the moment. It's not what you want to hear at the moment. Though it could be reassuring, it's not the most comforting. Because you're grieving. That very moment, you want compassion. You want someone to do, as the Bible says, to weep with you because you are weeping. Yet there is a wonderful truth that when we understand the sovereignty of God, it does bring great hope to our souls. Because it means we understand that he is the one that is in control of all things. That he is the one who has supreme power and authority. I have a lot of verses here. I'm going to tell you what they are. I'm not going to read them all. You can take some notes, read them later. Psalm 115, verse 3. Speaks of God being in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Isaiah 45, verse 7. That God is the one over all, over all creation. We spoke about it in recent weeks about when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God and Daniel chapter 4, how he responded and began to praise God in Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35. But he understood that God was the maker of all and that God was in control of everything. I like the words of Jesus. I'm going to read these to you. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. I want you to think about the sovereignty of God this way. As you look out and you see a tree and you see leaves on a tree, that a leaf does not fall from that tree outside the will of God. And if God ordains even a leaf to fall, how much more does he care about us and everything that happens in our lives? For homework tonight, I want you to read Isaiah 40, all of it. Read Isaiah chapter 40. Speaking of the sovereignty of God, the everlasting God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who does not faint or grow weary, the one whose understanding is unsearchable. When we're in our grief and we're told about the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of all things, even every single detail of every circumstance in my life, and the grief I'm currently going through, our response is not to ask, oh God, why? It is to trust a sovereign God. You guys are familiar with these verses, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Those of you that are familiar with Job, Job got to a point where he questioned God. There's some more homework for you. Job chapter 38 and into Job 39. God reminded Job of who he is. And questioned Job about where was Job when God was doing all these things of creating the earth and upholding all things. So the encouragement to us is that we're to trust that God is sovereign and that his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. And so to know that God is near and to know that he promised that he'll never leave you nor forsake you to know that he has promised you a future with him of eternal life where there is no sorrow and suffering and to trust in the fact that he is sovereign, that he knows all things and ordains all things and sustains all things, including us. And so we close with Samuel Rutherford's quote at the bottom of your handout. Our little time of suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. May that comfort your souls. Let's pray together and we'll ask the music team to come up and lead us in a song. Father, so much to be thankful for of your nearness, that you're not a God who is far off. God, I pray for anyone here this morning who, Lord, that is what is the feeling, their emotions is that God, you have forsaken them or abandoned them. God, I pray that the promises of your word, that you being a God who cannot lie, would comfort them, that you're a God who is near, that you're a God who is with them. God, I pray that the promise of eternal life, that this is the last time that they will suffer, that there will be an eternity where there will be no suffering, no sorrow, no pain, no misery, no sin, God, that would bring hope to their souls. 
And Father, the reminder that you're a God who is in control of all things. And even as we look at the Apostle Paul's life and see that all the things that he must suffer on behalf of Christ. Father, may we know that in our suffering, that you are sovereign. That you ordain all things, and in that you also uphold us through it, that you are the one who helps us to endure. Father, we pray that you would grant us the ability to hold on to this hope as we go through seasons of grief. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.